Well, thanks for tuning in to Catch My Drift podcast. Today with me, I got Dr. Dylan Blumentritt. He's a Winona State University Geosciences professor, Southeast Minnesota native and environmental steward. Pretty excited about this one to learn more about the area that I live in. Dylan, thanks for coming over. It's uh, it's a, been a real pleasure to meet you and kind of pick your brain a little bit even before the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you uh, you teach at my at my alma mater, Arizona <laughs> State. Um, I kind of joke and say that's my alma mater because I went there after I graduated, after my uh, associate got my associate's degree, and work forced me to go back. So. <laughs> it was nice. kind of reluctant, but anyway, I went back. <laughs> got my bachelor's degree in nursing at Winona State where you teach. Yeah, um, cool, man. So you teach there. You teach in the geosciences department. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the classes you teach and kind of your, your department that you teach in. Yeah, so um, I teach in the geosciences department, like you said, and there's five five of us full-time faculty members there. And there's a big range of areas of expertise Um we have a planetary geologist. We have a paleontologist who studies dinosaur bones. We have a hard rock geologist who studies how mountains were formed. Um, not rock and roll. Yeah, no, not, <laughs> yeah, not rock at all. I really want to be a hard rocker. Uh, and uh, we have a uh, an environmental geochemist as well. Um, and then I'm sort of a hydrologist, uh, geomorphologist, sort of area and what that really means is i study how the surface of the earth is shaped okay um so my main classes that i teach are watershed science which is kind of an introductory it's it's an upper level class for our majors but it kind of gets them into sort of the mindset of thinking about um surface processes how rivers and streams work um and how it fits into the overall function of our planet okay um i teach a geomorphology class which is essentially more advanced um things uh we take that the water concept a little bit further we study how glaciers shape shape the earth uh other things like wind erosion um and stuff like that uh i also teach some gis classes geographical information systems and that's kind of like mapping yeah that's how i describe it computer mapping okay uh it's definitely it goes a lot deeper than that there's a lot of analysis that you can do um with where and when things are so like the biologists will will use it a lot to study population dynamics um i use it to study uh landforms and um and things that you know, you can use this to, to see the earth in a, in a way that, you know, you can't really see from the ground. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's been a, that's, that's been, I actually teach that about half of the time. Uh, okay. so, so in a lot of my, I use it in a lot of my research as well. Okay. So those are the main classes that I teach. Uh, I also offer a travel class to Hawaii. This is something oh, we haven't boy. talked about. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. We were, <laughs> we, we were supposed to go, uh, in 2020, which got shut down. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm really fingers crossed for 2022. 20, sure. So that's a May class. And what do they do down in Hawaii? 
so we go uh so it's a you know hawaii is famous for the big volcanoes that they have and so we we spend a lot of time looking at at the volcanoes and the features the volcanic features um and so we go to the big island which is where the active volcanism is and then um the second half we go to the island of Kauai, okay. which is where active volcanoes haven't or the volcanoes haven't been active for about two million years. Oh wow. So there's a there's a really big difference in the landscape. And so we just kinda go through and look at all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's a three week class and it's definitely the highlight of my year. I've done I've led two classes down there so far, one at my previous institution and one one here. So that's awesome. My wife and I actually took our honeymoon there a couple oh, of years nice. back. And we went to Kauai. Um it's beautiful. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we went we took this touristy boat cruise along the north shore and went then we went hiking you know after that kind of yeah picking the the tour guide's brain and kind of decided we wanted to go on this hike and my gosh is it gorgeous yeah yeah do you remember do you remember where you went on your hike i can't remember was it on top of the nepali coast yes the alakai swamp sounds right where you were on boardwalks you're up on top of a mountain but you're walking through boardwalks but we i remember we kind of went out on this ridge and overlooking i mean it looked like the grand canyon but oh yeah tropical version yeah um and we were watching helicopters that yeah they were gosh probably 400 feet below us yeah coming in and doing tours and they turn around and but i mean just the cuts in that in that landscape it's just crazy i mean you'd fall and you'd it'd be 30 seconds before you hit the ground (laughs) so so my first trip that i took students out there we tried to hike down into that canyon which is called the Grand Canyon of the of the Pacific. Yep. And uh we got we got down quite a ways and some of the students were just like, uh, I don't think I'm gonna get back up if we keep going. So we ended up turning around um that trip. But then the second trip I took, we continued on the road that goes up along the canyon and then there's this it's called the Alakai Swamp. So it's at the it's at the top of that canyon. Okay. And uh it's this high elevation uh, cloud forest so there's precipitation wow. every single day that rolls in around 11 o'clock and it's enough to keep a, a swamp at the highest elevation of that of that island and it's pretty if i remember it's like a mile up isn't it uh i don't think i guess i don't know yeah i can't remember i don't know if i maybe remember seeing somewhere it was a five thousand feet above the it, sea it really could be uh i don't know it's around there yeah um, it's huge yeah regardless but yeah, and in the Big Island, the peaks there are just a little shy of fourteen thousand feet, which is, you know, some of the highest peaks in Colorado. Right. But this is just one big or two big mountains in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful over there. I bet you're pumped. To get yeah, back, I am. For sure. My wife is always jealous when I get to go, but yep. you know, I remind her that when I, when I'm there, I'm working the whole time. Yeah. So we're having our ten year wedding anniversary this coming year. And we're trying to plan a trip, and I'd love for her to just, if I could stay out there and she could come come visit and see what it's all about. Because she's never been there and she yeah. wants to go. So. That'd be perfect. So what? Um, so you said you'd take some trips out there. What kind of give me an idea, what do, your, uh, what do your students, what do they go on to be? Uh, what are their professions, or what do they go on to do after yeah. going through your courses? So um, it really ranges very wide gamut. Um, a lot of our students go on to work uh, in the public sector, so they'll work for like a local government all the way up to a state government. Okay. 
Uh, actually, one of one of our department alums just finished a PhD in volcanology, and she is now working in Hawaii at Volcanoes National Park for the U.S. Geological Survey. Wow. So that's that's a student who decided to go on to be a volcanologist, mm-hmm. um, and you know, so some of them go into academics, uh, continue on with their degrees. Uh, I think it's usually about a third of them will okay. do that. Uh, some of them go into mineral exploration. We have some fairly recent alums who have a pretty successful company in the Twin Cities that do a lot of mineral exploration. Um, a lot of the students with the GIS skills that they they get from us go on to just do GIS jobs. Okay. Um, so those are kind of those are kind of the I guess the main things that that they do. Cool. Sounds pretty neat. And then I guess the other thing I forgot to mention: environmental consulting is pretty big too. Okay. So go to work for places that you know their companies where if there's a construction project, um, making sure that everything is up to code, like they're not dumping a bunch of sediment uh, into a river, or, mm-hmm. or you know, if they get into some of the stinky stuff, uh, like if it's uh, if there's an oil spill, like that yeah. is being properly taken care of. Sure. So, I'm sure you get students from all over. Yeah, uh, in southeastern Minnesota, we actually get quite a few students from Wisconsin and, and Illinois. Okay. Uh, the tuition in the Minnesota state system is. Out-of-state tuition for somebody from Illinois, at least. I, I haven't looked at Wisconsin. But it's cheaper to pay out-of-state tuition than it is to pay in-state tuition in Illinois. Really? Yeah. So we get wow. quite a few students coming up from Illinois. Uh, the majority, I would say, are from the Twin Cities area. So and I I remember, you know, looking at different schools. There is some some reciprocity between states, you know, that border each, you know, Wisconsin. So they might get some break. Too, yeah. But. Well, there used to be reciprocity with Wisconsin. They dissolved that. Okay. Um, and I guess I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure on this. I th- I think I think Winona State still gives Wisconsin students reciprocity, even okay. though the rest of the Minnesota state system doesn't. Hmm. I guess I'm not totally sure on that. Yeah. That's nice of them. Yeah, I got, I <laughs> got, so I got over ten years before my kids start going to school, so I'll look into it then. <laughs> I mean, we are so close from you know the Winona State campus. You can see Wisconsin, you know, yeah. it's just over the creek. Yeah. So. Well, and if you think about it, like if you were to draw a radius around a campus, like let's say Mankato State, yep, you know, of a hundred miles, all of those students are in Minnesota. Yep. Where here, only half of those students would be in Minnesota because we're right on the border. Right. So to me, that makes sense. Yep. And we're so close to Iowa too. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure you get some students from there, but do, do any students stick around in this area to kind of do work or? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of students really would want to, um, you know, there's, there's jobs in La Crosse and Rochester. There's not a lot of companies and, you know, the local government being a smaller town isn't, isn't that large here in Winona. So some of them are lucky enough to get uh, excuse me, to find some of those jobs. Uh, but I would say the majority of the students uh, usually move back up to the Twin Cities, okay. Chicago, Madison, Milwaukee, um, and then kind of go from there. Yep. So, yeah. So it's too bad because I know, you know, they come down here because they, a lot of, especially our students, but a lot of students just in general come down here because they just, you know, if it's between here or I'm going to pick on Mankato, Mankato's flat. You know, there's, right. there are some, 
some pretty cool river valleys. I've actually done a lot of work in that area and I went to school just north of Mankato. Um, but it's not like around here. And right. so some people are attracted by the natural beauty of down here and, you know, to not be able to find a job in this area, I know kind of hurts a lot of them, yeah. but yeah, you know, with the trends, maybe a lot of them will be able to telecommute or work on their computers and live wherever they want. So yeah. that'd be awesome. Be good for this, this, this city. Absolutely. Yeah. Do they, do the students that come here, you know, from out West or where, I mean, flat parts of, you know, like North Dakota, I'm sure. Do they realize how unique of an area this is? Yeah. Or I'm sure you go over that in some of your courses. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I actually teach a introductory course called Minnesota's Rocks and Waters. So it's a 100 level class. And, you know, we talk a lot about this area, but also, you know, Minnesota, what makes, what makes the entire state unique. Um, but then I also focus a lot on this area. And uh, so, yeah, I definitely, I mean, that's a whole class that's sort of centered around right. that idea. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I think they, everybody who comes down here notices that there's something different, mm -hmm. you know, and, and actually we get quite a few students from Western Wisconsin, which, you know, probably the biggest part of the Driftless area is in Western Wisconsin. And yep. so, so those students already know, you know, and a lot of them don't want to leave the area right. just because, you know, a lot of them do hunt and fish and, and they know if they go to a, like a U of M in the middle of Twin Cities, like that's just not going to happen. <laughs> right. You know, you're not going to be able to drive 10 miles and be at a spot. Right. Right. So, yep. That's right. Some of them bring their boats up, go, go out on the river, yeah. you know, between classes. And so you're, you talked a little bit and I, you know, about the driftless area. What is, what does that mean? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, so drift is, sediment that's deposited directly from the ice from glaciers and is that ice that or the sediment that's being pushed by ice or does it it's yeah so it could be sediment that was pushed or came out during melting um or you know sort of left behind so a glacier can advance and retreat but if it stagnates it'll start to deposit any sediment that it picked up along the way um so glaciers are you know, one of the reasons why the rest of the state is fairly flat is that the rest of the state was was um, scoured by glaciers. Pretty much just getting bulldozed the whole way down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nature's bulldozers, sure. exactly. So, you know, the boundary waters, there's a lot of lakes, there's a lot of bare bedrock. That's where the glaciers scraped away all that sediment. So you're telling me that's not from Paul Bunyan? No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> um, and then southern Minnesota, everything is fairly flat because um that's where the glaciers sort of filled in yeah. areas so there's a lot of like buried bedrock valleys that some valleys that used to have rivers in them that were just totally buried by glacial sediment wow so and then there's also areas where you know that it was like the edge of the glacier um what we call it a moraine um so where the glacier kind of stopped moving and that deposits this like a bunch of different ways. And so it creates topography where you have really like highs and lows. We call it hummocky topography. Okay. Um, but like if you've ever been up to Lake Itasca or Alexandria area, yep. there's a lot of really small lakes. Um, and that's a result of the influence of the glaciers. So here, oh, sorry. So here in Minnesota or in Southeastern Minnesota, in the driftless area, what that means is, so we don't have, 
glacial drift. So sediment that was deposited directly by the ice, which is a key indication that we had glaciers, Mm -hmm. you know? So without having that deposit, that means that we were not bulldozed by the most recent glaciation. Okay. Um, and I actually, I got an email actually today, uh, from a, from a citizen in Wabasha. She was reading a book saying that, well, we live in the Driftless area, but this this glacial geologist who um, Carrie Jennings, who I know and respect, and actually worked, she was a mentor of mine. She's like, well, Dr. Jennings said that this area was covered with glaciers, and so both are right. So we this area was covered with glaciers, you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands to mil- even millions of years ago, and the evidence for that is they found glacial drift inside caves but everything else was eroded away because if you leave sediment out for two million years it's going to get washed away so we don't have any evidence of the most recent glaciation which was receded the glaciers receded out of the surrounding area roughly fifteen thousand years ago okay um so we haven't been which really isn't too too long ago i mean as far as you were just talking millions of years ago yeah yeah pretty fresh yeah, it's it's a blink of the eye mm-hmm. in the in the history of the Earth, which is about four point six billion years ago. Okay, you know that's actually a really good point. Um, one of the one of the big challenges with our students is is like kind of getting them to realize what the the time scale is like, right? So. So I do an exercise where I teach in this really big lecture hall and I take a tape measure and I, I, we go all the way around the room and it's like, well, at halfway through, um, you know, so maybe it's 50, 50 yards, right? So at 25 yards, that's where like the first life comes around. Okay. And it's not until it's like, like the width of a hair is where the first humans came up. Oh my came gosh. On it. So it's, I mean, it's just, it's literally a blink of an eye. Wow. And it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. Like how, <laughs> how brief a human life is in the history of our planet, you know? So it definitely, I know it's, it's something that's hard to grasp and there's a lot of philosophical things that can come from thinking that way. Right. <laughs> Yeah. You know, what is my significance? What is our purpose? Yeah. You know, all yeah. of that stuff. I'm sitting here with my jaw on the floor. Like, <laughs> Holy smokes. Um, so, I mean, you know, looking out my, looking out my patio door here, mm-hmm. you, you know, we see there's a, you know, Rolling Stone Creek runs right through the middle of this valley. And it was that from Glacier Melt or what? Yeah. Why, uh, these, why does this area look like this? Yeah. Okay. So. So we had the glaciers that sort of bulldoze the rest of the state. Well, here we've had hundreds of thousands of years for our streams to erode down into our valleys and or down into the to the bedrock, forming our valleys mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So um, it's just an older it's an older landscape, and that's why we have better developed stream networks. That's why we don't have lakes here. The only kind of lakes we have in the Driftless are floodplain lakes. So Lake Winona is yep. a is in the Mississippi River floodplain. Uh, lake Pepin, which is a lake that I've done a lot of work on, is 
is actually connected to the Mississippi River. It's part of the Mississippi River. Um, so those are really the only types of lakes that we see here, other than, you know, cattle ponds and, and farm fields. Um, you know, yep. you see some of that, but that's those are typically man-made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just because our, our stream network is, is better developed. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the things that makes this area so unique is, you know, you go to flatter areas and, and you know, it's it's kind of hard to get away, I guess. Um, or here, it's pretty easy to find a nook or cranny to go hide in and, Absolutely. and you know, sort of be by yourself and yep. think about geologic time and our insignificance on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the... Uh one of the things that you know we were talking a little bit before this you, you had me watch this uh, documentary yeah. called decoding the driftless yeah which you're featured in which i thought was pretty damn cool um and in there you talk about inverse topography yeah and that you know from from what from what i understand is that's kind of what we're looking at right yeah now. yeah so if we were to if you were to go to a mountain range there you'd see topographic highs and topographic lows and that's because the crust was pushed up. Okay. Where here we have topographic highs and topographic lows, and that's because the earth was eroded down. So if you stand on Garvin Heights Bluff and you look straight across to Wisconsin, you can notice that the the your eyesight, the the bluff line is all one level. Same elevation. It's the same elevation, yeah. And that's because um, that's the level of the more resistant bedrock here. Uh, and everything else has sort of been carved into that rather than being uplifted. So okay. I've heard, I've heard before, Oh, you know, we love, we just love the mountains up here. <laughs> Usually it's from somebody in, in Illinois. central, yeah, central <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's not quite mountains. Um, and they're not as high as a mountain range, but you know, we like them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty neat to, you know, stand on one of those overlooks and kind of look, and you're right, straight across the river or wherever, it's all the same height. Yeah, yeah. And every little, uh, like you said, nook or cranny or valley, coulee, whatever you want to call them, is, was carved out, I guess. Yeah, That's yep. pretty neat. Yep. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of my favorite parts about this area, and even in, just in southeast Minnesota where you grew up. And not many people know this, and I almost don't even want to say it, but (laughs) (laughs) there's over 700 miles of fishable trout streams around here. Yeah. And we have the the glaciers, I guess, to thank for that. Yeah, yeah. Glaciers avoided us, um, didn't didn't fill in those valleys uh, like they did in other places. Uh, I will, although, you know, there is, so there's a group of us... um, doing some research in the whitewater. Mm-hmm. And so so just because we weren't covered in ice doesn't mean we weren't influenced by the glaciers. So one of the things that happened was the Mississippi River Valley was already a big, wide river valley. And so that's where the glacial meltwater drained. So was the... Sorry to cut you off no, here, but was the Mississippi River already flowing or was that a result of the... Yeah, so that... that there was prior to the last glaciation, there was likely a river in it. Um, and it was a big, a big old valley, much like it is today. There was definitely some 
carving of it during the last glaciation, but to carve something that big takes more than one glacial cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so when the glaciers were close by, we had a lot of meltwater moving down and glaciers carry just a tremendous amount of sediment. And so that sediment ended up in the Mississippi river Valley and filled it up to, I think about 30 meters or 30 yards higher than it, than where the river is today. And if you ever go up to Wabasha, especially Kellogg, um, on the other side of the river, on uh, your Pepin, there's kind of these like stair step terraces. And those are evidence of that filling up. And then as the glaciers went even farther up, we got the water coming through this area, but not the sediment. And so it eroded, it washed away a lot of that sediment, carving gotcha. those terraces. So one of the results of having that that valley fill up is that the tributaries, like the Whitewater, which mm-hmm. is the one that this group uh, led by Andy Wickert and uh, Phil Larson, um, is one of the things that they're studying is how the main Mississippi River glacial history has affected the sedimentation of of our our tributary streams and those tributary streams are where the trout are right right yep and um so there's there's a couple things going on where we want to try to figure out was it the glaciers that that made those valley bottoms fill up um or was it human activity okay and that's going to affect how how we deal with with excess sediment so if you've ever been trout fishing and you've seen a 10-foot black dirt bank Mm -hmm. right is that a backwater deposit from when the glaciers filled up the valley or is that uh sediment eroding from the from the bluffs when all the trees were cut down and and cows were allowed to roam on those hill slopes which then washed into the valley bottom okay so one of my one of my previous guests norm and my good my good buddy he was in my wedding party great mm-hmm. guy we uh we fished this tournament it was called the driftless area border battle okay and i mean we we won the we won the tournament just because we kind of have some local intel and there were you know i was a winona state student at the time and it was held by uh the winona state on the fly club okay um and there were you know kids from all over uh i think stevens point and uh UW Whitewater came over all over and some from Mankato even, but we have some, had some local Intel. (laughs) We had about three inches of rain that day. I mean, the previous like two days before leading up to this tournament. So all the streams around here were pretty much just chocolate milk color. Yeah. Yeah. So why, and you know, we know that there's certain streams that color up like Rolling Stone you get a quarter inch of rain and that thing is just blown out. Yeah. You may as well, if you had plans to go out fishing and you had a quarter inch of rain, you may not, not as well even go that day. Well, yeah. There's a farm right up the road that, okay. that, uh, their driveway crosses the stream and every spring it's like, they gotta, they gotta take the tractor like all the way around into town because yep. yep. they can't get out of their driveway. <laughs> <laughs> so there's certain streams, you know, like Rolling Stone that color up super quick. And there's other streams that don't. Yeah. Yeah. The white, the whitewater is a great example of that. So there's three forks of the whitewater Mm -hmm. and the North fork is just like that. Like it'll stay, it'll stay that chocolate milk for 
you know, a day or two where the other ones, you know, depending on the length of the storm, where the middle and the south will clear up a little bit quicker. Um, okay. What, what do you, why do you suppose that is? Yeah. So that's one of the things that we've been trying to think about. Um, it, it's likely due to the amount of, um, bank exposure. Okay. So the amount of sediment that's being mobilized during one of those storm events, um, it could also be land use up in the headwater area. So, you know, if, if farmers are using, um, cover crops and strip cropping and, um, water and sediment retention ponds, you know, there, there could be less water and sediment moving in those systems, mm-hmm. um, in the systems that are, are cleaner. And, uh, you know, it could also, you know, we have this thing called karst here, which, is um basically like mini caves i mean a a cave is karst as well but we have a lot of these fractures in our bedrock that are made wider when limestone is dissolved by rainwater okay and so some of these some of these streams just have a a much stronger connection to their headwaters and some of them don't quite have that and these connections can open and close. I've witnessed that before, um, where, you know, one before a storm event, there's a stream that's disappearing into, into the ground. It's a disappearing stream or a stream sink. Hmm. And we have a flood and, and all of a sudden that, that stream is flowing for the rest of the summer, even during a drought, because that, that cavity was closed up. So, it's a really complicated situation, um, and there's really no way to predict other than doing dye tracing from a specific location. And even then, uh, I've talked to people at the DNR who do dye tracing down here, the DNR in University of Minnesota, and you know sometimes they'll pour dye into a sinkhole and they'll see it four hours later in the stream, and sometimes they'll never see it. They, it disappears and maybe it came out in, you know, the root river, the Mississippi river, you know, disappeared into the deeper groundwater. It's just a really complicated system. Wow. Yeah. And so that's why, I mean, that's one of the things that we talk about is it really matters what happens at, on the entire watershed. So up on the land, you know, it, that, that is, even though you might not see a channel connecting it to the trout habitat, is connected in some way mm-hmm. so yeah it gets there somehow yeah yeah huh that's that's pretty interesting it it uh it really makes you think about you know like agriculture and what what we're putting on our on the crops and digging into the ground you know fertilizers and all that kind of stuff i know oh gosh how long ago was it on the south branch of the Whitewater, I think maybe three years ago now, there was a pretty big trout kill. Yeah. Um, that was about six years ago. Six years ago. Okay, that time flies. Well, so that that actually um, implemented a study that we worked for. So the reason I know this is when I got to Minnesota in 2016, um, a biologist at Winona State, Neil Mundahl, had already submitted a proposal to the state of Minnesota, a grant proposal to get money to try to track where some of these 
they thought it was a fungicide. So we okay. were measuring fungicides that they applied to, to farm fields. And, um, and so that was a three year project that ended two years ago. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, I mean, what would a farmer use a fung? I mean, obviously to kill fungus, but yeah. So I, I didn't know that either. So, uh, it started that they would apply the fungicide if there was a fungus that was sort of taking over their, their crop. Um, but one of the things that we learned is that they were realizing that they had increased yield, increased productivity just by preemptively applying this stuff. Okay. So kind of like a prophylactic yeah. treatment. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So they were applying this stuff at, at pretty large rates. And, um, and that's sort of one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we sort of implemented this study. Uh, but not everybody was doing it, mm-hmm. um, and the karst complicated things. Um, and so, you know, we walked away really knowing that this was affecting our streams, but it was a, and well, I guess we, what we learned is that it's a really unpredictable, um, toxin. Okay. And so we would have really high high amounts of this stuff coming down during base level flow. So not following a storm event. And then we would barely measure some during a storm event really? in the same spot. Huh. And then the next month we would measure some during a storm event and have low levels during, during, um, base flow. And so I think it, I think it has to do with when they apply it. It's not something that's being applied throughout the whole growing season. Okay. Um, they apply it kind of, at one, I think it's one time in the kind of in the middle of summer. Okay. So, so yeah, it, uh, but even then we were still getting, we were getting this stuff in spring when it should have been, you know, a whole, you know, if they applied it the previous summer, that's when, you know, we probably shouldn't have seen it. And then we were seeing it in August too. Sure. So, hmm. so it probably makes it hard to track and yeah, super hard to track. You know, I, the study, the study was, was, it, it it basically informed us at how complicated it was, right? It mm-hmm. wasn't just oh, we're gonna go out and measure concentrations and say this is where it came from, yep. you know, like so. So yeah, I think it was it was definitely a well worth the study was well worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, you know, there's definitely way more much more work to do. Absolutely, wow. It's uh, it seems more more complicated than just the article I read in the newspaper. Mm. That's for sure. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I guess kind of to get back, you know, about how fascinating this area is, what kind of, um, you, what kind of sediments did this, did the glaciers leave behind when they were pushing all this down and kind of what, uh, what did the area look like before all the glaciers moved through? Yeah. So the air, this area before we had, so are you asking about areas outside of the driftless or areas? Yeah, maybe the... to the north of here. I mean, I, I know some glaciers came from our from our east too a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So there's different lobes. Um, the main lobe was the that moved through Minnesota was the Des Moines lobe, okay. um, and that's what flattened most of central Minnesota. That's why we have you know the Minnesota River Valley or basin is really highly productive agricultural land uh, because of that lobe was bringing down, um, grinding up sediments from Canada, the shales, the gray, uh, you can tell it's gray 
we had the superior lobe that came through sort of the Lake Superior Basin that picked up a lot of iron. Um, and so you can tell that sediment because it's got a little rusty red color. Okay. And then there was um, another lobe that came down through sort of Lake Michigan as well. Um, and so, yeah, so that I think, you know, most of the surrounding areas would have looked very similar to this um, prior to glaciation. And so really, you know, this is an interesting thought. I haven't really thought about this, but this is this is essentially a relic landscape for the rest of, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. And that's kind of a crazy thought to think about. And yeah. the, the geology is different in different areas. So we have a lot of sedimentary rocks down here where, you know, if you go up to the North shore of Lake Superior, it's volcanic rocks, you know, billion year old volcanic rocks. And um, so that, that also plays a role in how it would have looked prior to glaciation. Okay. So. And now the, the primary rock that's around here, is that all uh, limestone or can you explain how that would form? Or? Yeah. So, so our rocks that make up the bluffs here, um, were deposited around 500 million years ago. Wow. Right. So that's half a billion years. It's a long ass time. Yeah. And so during that time, you know, the world was a much different place. Um, there were some organisms that lived in the ocean. Um, and the, the United States, the continent would have been rotated 90 degrees with Maine being at the north and California being at the south. And we were kind of around the equator. Wow. Um, no glaciers on the planet. So the sea level was much higher. So this whole area was, was under an interior sea. So it's, um, the ocean basically came all the way up through the center of our continent. And that sea level fluctuated. And we see our rocks right now are predominantly um, sandstones, limestones, and dolostone, which is a type of limestone. There's just a slight difference in the chemistry. Okay. Um, and then shales. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about those is they all tell, uh, tell us where that sea level was when they were being deposited. So if it's sandstone, um, we have a higher energy system where it's basically a beach deposit okay right yep. and so if you ever been to a beach at the ocean you know it's pretty much just quartz sand uh, maybe some gravelly stuff somewhere and then um the the limestone and the dolostone are basically deeper ocean muds so stuff that's being deposited at the bottom of the ocean okay so and then the shales are sort of somewhat in between those two so our sequence if you're, if you're in Winona and you're looking at the bluffs, you have the limestone that's that's really strong, um, mechanically strong, and it's basically holding up those bluffs. Okay. And then just below that, we have our sandstone, which you can carve your name in it basically with your finger, right? It's super mechanically weak. Mm -hmm. And so if the lime, the sorry, the, the top rock is a dolostone, the oniota dolomite, if that wasn't there everything would would basically shrink down okay um is that why you see sometimes i mean driving down to work you see and even on the river too just south of fountain city or twin bluffs that area you see kind of some exposed rock faces yeah is that that softer material that kind of erodes no the the where you get vertical yeah. cliff faces that's the stronger stuff okay 
Yeah. And so, so we call those cliff formers. The stronger stuff is cliff formers. The weaker stuff are slope formers. So you'll see gotcha. areas where there's a, uh, with it straight up and down, there's no trees. That's the stuff you can see really yep. well. Um, and then below that, usually there's like a layer where it kind of slopes down and you don't see any exposure cause it's all covered with trees. Yep. And that's the weak stuff where things can grow sure, and soil can form and stuff like that. Okay. So gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I'd always wondered kind of how that worked. I figured just part of that rock broke off, and but it's actually softer stuff, I guess. Yeah, the the irony of it is that the limestones and the dolostones are actually more chemically weak, so that's where we find our karst. Okay. Um, where the sandstone quartz is the most chemically resistant mineral. It's it's very common. It's the most chemically resistant of the common minerals. Diamonds, obviously way more, way more chemically resistant, Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that, but it's really common. And, um, but it's, it's really resistant to that, that chemical weathering. So it's, the irony is that the mechanically strong is also the chemically weak and then the other way around. Okay. So even though we have these, this strong, you know, kind of limestone or dolostone cliffs, it's still, if you put acid on it, it will just dissolve. And rainwater is slightly acidic. So give it enough time and exposure to that acidic rainwater, you will start to get some some of that rock gotcha. dissolving away. And that's huh. how we get our karst. Sure. Wow. So, and we have we have the sequence. So just we see the dolostone, we see the sandstone, and then there's, there's sequences of those rocks. There's some shales mixed in. And so what we see is evidence around that, that time period, 500 million years ago, we see sea level rising and falling, rising okay. and falling. Seek big sequences of this happening at that time. And now what would that, what does that evidence look like? Are you seeing fossils? Are you seeing plant fossils or there are some slugs fo- or snails? Yeah. Or- so there are some, there are some fossils, um, I like to go around with my kids. A lot of the uh, limestone in the area that they use for um, building like rock walls and stuff has uh, these castings. So worms that would have lived at the bottom of the ocean. Okay. And, you know, worms kind of move through the sediment. They eat and then it goes out the other end. Mm-hmm. And so they leave behind these these castings that look like or they trails, look like worms. Yeah. 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 So they, yeah. So they look like trails. Um so those we have evidence of those uh, trilobites we have uh, not really in this area over in Wisconsin. There's some of those we see some bivalves. And what would that? I'll so, have to show you some rocks that I found trout fishing after we're done. Oh yeah, see what we see what you think. Yeah, I uh, t- I typically don't find fossils in the rocks around around here. Okay. Um, it's they just weren't that abundant, and it's also you know preservation for that long is is. You know, a lot of times there's some replacement with um, with the groundwater moving through. Um, so, yeah, I don't. It's not. It's not always evident. Uh, we should talk to the paleontologist because yeah. he, you know, he's <laughs> he's definitely way more in tune with that. Might be a good next episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I guess that being said, what what's like one of the one of the coolest things? Maybe you're out working on a project with some of your students or just out by yourself maybe with your family what's one of the coolest things you found just poking around um you know so i i'm i'm more of a 
stream and river and glacier person okay. and less a rock person. And so, you know, some of the, some of the cooler things that I find aren't necessarily things as much as places. Um, you know, I just, I, I love exploring, you know, some of these smaller valleys, streams, you know, you mentioned family. One of my favorite things to do is go for little hikes with mm-hmm. my kids who are four and six right now. And, you know, they can go, they can go pretty far, but you know, they can't do, you know, 10 mile mountain hikes yet. Right. Yeah. We're going to work on that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just, I, it's usually places that I find, you know, sort of in those, in those moments, um, that just, you know, become really special. Uh, and, you know, I have a unique perspective where sort of my training kind of allows me you know, I was thinking about this. It allows me to understand a landscape probably more than an average person. Sure. And, you know, sort of ask questions and think about things and, and, you know, when you're, we were emailing before this, you're asking, you know, what am I into? And mostly it's out, outdoor pursuits and it's mostly hiking. And I think that's just because I love like exploring landscapes and, and even, you know, I, I do a lot of hiking out at whitewater yep. and I always see something new, you know, even if I've been on a trail a hundred times, mm-hmm. I always see something new and there's so many good views where you can, you can, you know, you're not just looking at a rock or a pebble on the ground. You're looking at an entire valley. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that I think that's sort of, that's sort of what I love to do, why I love doing what I do. It is a very, very neat perspective. I mean, when you're, when you're up on the, let's say the Elba fire tower or John Latch state park, I mean, you feel pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty, and like kind of, we we were talking about earlier, pretty young. I yeah. mean, yeah. this area is a bajillion years old mm-hmm. and we've only been here just for a blink of an eye. Like you said, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. What, um, do you have any, any nooks or crannies or any favorite hikes or outlooks that you think that anybody living in this area who likes the outdoors should go check out? Yeah. So uh, by far my favorite is whitewater and, you know, I like to explore the Wisconsin parks right across the river a little bit, but really in my mind, and it, this might be a little nostalgia too, cause we used to go camping there every weekend. Mm-hmm when I was younger and, you know, I've been on those trails a million times and, and I just love bringing my kids out there and we'll go find a little gravel bar and just throw rocks and spend hours <laughs> just sitting next to a stream. Yeah, and what four and six year old boy doesn't like to oh, throw yeah. rocks yeah. in the or water. Or 40 year old man. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, whitewater is, is definitely a hidden gem. And like I said, we were starting this project with, uh, with these geomorphologists from around the state really from around the world, there's people from Colorado, California, uh, Europe, Europe, several Europeans came and, you know, even people who have lived in this area or lived in Minnesota were like, Oh my God, this is within a two hour drive for me. Mm -hmm. Like, this is amazing. And so that, that to me, that's, that's sort of the hidden gem. And, you know, there's a lot of good trails around here. Uh, if you're in the Winona area, I really like the St. Mary's trails. I like to go for, you know, do a little trail run or even just like a little hike back there. Um, again, I, 
I guess I gravitate towards what I know. I went to St. Mary's and I worked on those trails when mm-hmm. I was going there. So, and the neat part about you know, it's not so much seasonal for them too at St. Mary's. They have ski trails, yeah. that, that go through those or cross country ski trails. I yep. guess I should say, yep. So, so you can you can walk on those all summer long, and then you can ski on them yep. all winter long. And that's what I did. I was a I was a, a groomer. So I okay, would, yeah, I got paid to drive around on a snowmobile nice. when I was in college. It was awesome. <laughs> and then in the summertime we'd run a chainsaw. So it was perfect. Good. Yeah, it sounds like a good, it sounds like a good uh, good job to get some. Yeah, way better than grading papers or right. sitting in a computer lab. <laughs> um, I get so you know we talked about how 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 you like hunt, hiking around here and stuff. What's one dream hiking destination you you've got? Where do you want, where do you got to go? What's on your bucket list? Well, I've been, I've been on the superior hiking trail and that was, I was telling you earlier, that was on my, on my plan for, um, for later this month until I hurt my knee. So I don't think that's going to happen, which is fine. The, the fires up there were kind of, they kind of shut that all down. Yeah. They shut down all backcountry camping, um, which I think is back now, or at least it was back as of last week. So I'm not going to get to do that this fall. I'd love to do like a long through hike like that sometime. Um, really for me, um, I love, I love going out West. I love the mountains. Um, you know, we talked about going up at some of the outlooks at whitewater and be able to see the big picture. And when you go to the mountain range and you're above the tree line, like you can see a really, really big picture. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my, my biggest goal, I don't have any one like hike, my list what i really want to do is with my boys and and go out west you know do like a week trip once a year and just like make that kind of a tradition um and you know just be together as a family and that sounds awesome do stuff like that so yeah and along with that comes a love for hiking and a love for you know landscapes and that's just sort of a kind of a vacation but we you know, all summer long, we're out around here. And, you know, I I lived in the Twin Cities for about 10 years. And when I moved back, you know, something about driving into this valley, where for about three years, I was pinching myself on every drive to work, (laughs) you know, it's just so amazing to be to be back in this area and to, you know, be able to get out whenever I want. Like, it's just great. Yeah, I think, I'm part of me. I'm glad I don't keep a camera in my car driving to work every morning <laughs> because it, I'd be late. Yeah. Half the days. <laughs> but part of me wants to keep a camera in my car just to, you know, just to capture some of the stuff when you see the fog rolling in yeah. or, or out, I guess. Yeah. And the sun coming up and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. We live in, we live in Stockton and it's crazy how many times like our Valley will be socked in and then you go into Winona, it's totally clear. Yeah. Or how many times our Valley is totally clear and you'll drive in and Winona is just under this haze, which is cool coming down that hill. Yeah. Cause you go from being above the clouds to in the clouds and then all of a sudden <laughs> you're out of the clouds again. And it's only 600 feet yeah. from Valley bottom to the top of the bluffs. And that's not, you know, that's not, not that not that far elevation wise yeah um f- to be driving through clouds like that so yeah that's that's definitely a highlight um we we talked a little bit about you know agricultural practices and kind of some things you know that we could do maybe better 
dive into that a little bit deeper. What what else can we what else can we do? What else can I do? What yeah. else can you know me and my buddies do? I think I think just the... to just to protect this such unique environment and ecosystem. I mean it you know Yeah. It's something special. The biggest thing that you can do is let the policymakers know that that's important to you. Okay. You know, a lot of what, what I do, um, people say, well, you know, it targets farmers. And I, you know, my whole family, two generations ago, they were all farmers. Yeah. And Same. It's, a, it's a tough way to make a living. And, and especially the smaller family farms. And a lot of times they're being pushed and pulled different directions based on legislation so rules that are set forth um by people in saint paul and people in washington dc and so it's not their fault you know most of the time it's not their fault you know and there might be a handful of times where somebody does something that that you know causes issues but in the long run you know what they plant and what the way they take care of their their crops is driven by policy so and that's something that we all have a a hand in you know you know we talk about human time frame and feeling small um and that a lot of times when you talk to a legislator that's sort of how it feels Mm -hmm. i think um you know just sending an email you're like well what who am i um but it does have an impact and if enough people do that that will help protect our lands and our waters um, and also our farmers, right? Mm-hmm. We want to protect the people who, you know, they live off the land. Yeah. They're and not, they're, they're not intentionally trying to degrade the land. It. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're out there busting their ass, making a living. Exactly. Harder than I'll ever work. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. And, and good for them. Right. Right. So I think, I think for me, that's the biggest single thing that, that, that as a population we can support okay and that makes sense too you know i I mean i look at this landscape and i look at all the people and what they're doing too and i mean just some person can have a voice yeah in in just protecting what they love to do and i mean i love to trout fish and you know if i could if i could voice that to some politician i mean It'd be pretty cool if, if I could even take them there and show them, hey, look at how beautiful this is here. Yeah, yeah. Let's do let's do a little bit better of a job and you know, yep. try to protect this resource. Well, and now you have a voice with this podcast, right? Sure. That you know you can point. Hey, look at this is what this is what we like to do down here. Right? Yeah. This is how we depend on this land. Yeah. And you know, so in a lot of ways, you have a bigger voice than a lot of people right yeah. now. So, yeah, I guess I never looked at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know you, uh, you know, that's not the motivation here, political, driving things politically, but, um, and I, yeah. I honestly, like, I, I try to stay out of it. I think, I think it's easy to get caught up in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody has a different point of view, and, and usually that's valid to whatever that person's experiences are. Um, and, you know, so I, I, you know, politics can be sort of a, a slippery slope, but I do think that people can agree that, that, you know, we like where we live yeah. and we don't want it to, to, you know, turn into, 
you know, some hazardous waste dump. Right. right? And, yep. you know, we can all work together to try to make it so that doesn't happen. Yep. Yep. And, and, and that being said, you know, we don't have to go all one way to, you know, stopping all big ag practices, right? you know, and to the other end of the spectrum, we can meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah. There's got to be somewhere we can meet in the middle. Right. Right. Which I think is doable. It's got to be. It has to be. Right. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Well, that's cool. Um, one of my, one of my other, one, one of my other regular listeners, I guess, to this podcast, uh, wanted to know, what do you think about, what do you think about, uh, trout unlimited habitat restoration? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, the biggest thing that they do, so, so habitat restoration is where they go in and they bring in heavy equipment and they turn a stream channel into something that trout are going to like a little bit more. And, um, I'm all for it. I've, I initially was a little skeptical, you know, you bring in a stretch of stream and you're, you have heavy equipment every single day, making the water murky, moving Mm -hmm. things around. Those things are so resilient. They move back in really quickly. Yeah. Uh, witnessed it. I fished some of the restoration projects that happened like earlier in the summer. Um, I've talked to some of the biologists that go through and do the electroshocking, um, and and it's it's a non-issue. I I tend to favor. So the biggest thing for me that they do is uh, bank sloping. So okay. rather than having a ten foot vertical bank they slope it back so that as the water level rises it's not creating really high flow zones um, which are more erosive it's letting the water spread out over a floodplain, mm-hmm. and that's reducing a lot of the se- sediment which is stabilizing the stream channel okay um the you know they put in a lot of structures that are not natural, but are intended to mimic a natural structure. You know, for somebody who doesn't fish a lot, to me, I look at that and it, it, it looks like there was a restoration price. So I don't, I'm not crazy about that, but yeah. if, you know, if the fish like it and, and people want to fish that, that, that's, that's fine with me. Like it doesn't take anything away from the stability of the system for me. What I, what I don't like is I think a lot of the, people out there who support these think that once one goes in place, it should be like that forever or for a very long time or for every stream. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's not going to happen. Right. So like I said, some of these valleys have filled up, um, to an unnatural level. And they're, they're the reason we get 10 foot banks is that the stream is trying to work its way down through these sediments, whether they were deposited by glaciers, you know, 15,000 years ago or the result of glaciers 15,000 years ago, or whether it was from human activity 150 years ago. Um, it doesn't matter. The stream doesn't care. It's still going to try to try to cut down through that sediment and to expect a restoration project that doesn't address that issue, which none of them can, unless you excavated an entire river Valley to have a perfect stream profile. Um, then it's it it's always going to be a losing battle. Anytime you battle Mother Nature, it's always going to be a losing battle. Sure. Um, and so, so I, you know, the the best restoration projects are those that 
are able to work within the natural variability of the stream and you know sort of work on a floodplain level instead of a, a stream channel level okay um you know so you put a pile of rocks here and then the next you get a hundred year flood and you go out and that all of a sudden that pile of rocks rather than stabilizing the bank is in the middle of the stream channel sure well nobody can predict that it's going to be a hundred year flood you know there's there's one in a hundred chance that a hundred year flood happens next year yep right and then even then there's a one in a hundred chance that that another hundred year flood will happen the following (laughs) year so it's you know you're you're you need to work with mother nature, not against it. Um, and so I think expectations just need to be realistic. Okay. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely stream restoration projects that fail after their first year, uh, because the grasses in the floodplain weren't able to grow enough to get roots that could establish and hold that sediment in place. And there was a 50 year flood or a high flow event that altered the stream channel beyond what they, what they designed it to be the year before. Um, and that's just, that's just, part, that's, that's part of the, the game, I guess. So, yeah, I think it's a good answer. <laughs> it's a, I struggle with it too. Um, there's definitely, definitely some streams that I've fished that, I mean, it looks like a golf course, you yeah. know? Yeah. And for me, it's all about, you know, I want to catch a big fish and I want to have it all to myself <laughs> and I want to you know, be the only dude that knows about the secret spot. And yeah, I'm not afraid to put on two, three, four miles to get back to that spot. And so anytime I see somebody or TU or DNR, whoever take one of those spots and make it into a golf course, it kind of chaps my ass. Yeah. But, and I know they're doing, you know, TU wouldn't be around if they, if they were doing hocus pocus or yeah. bad stuff to the environment. So I know it's good for the environment. Yeah. Um, so one one of the things with the TU restoration projects, they do take a lot of the trees back, yeah, which reduces the shade, mm-hmm. which is important for keeping streams cold. Um, but it allows prairie grasses to grow or native grasses to grow, mm-hmm. which stabilizes that sediment. Yep. And one of the things that they typically do is they so those those native grasses take several years to take off so it will look like a golf course for a couple years because they plant rye as a cover grass right usually it's rye so you know the one at um garvin brook where i take my students all the time when they first did that it looked it looked they and the other part of the contract was the county had to keep it mowed for two years mm-hmm. so it did look like a golf course <laughs> country club yeah yeah which was great for me because i would go out with students they weren't like trying to measure around trees and all sure. that stuff and now it's all grown up and the birds have come back yeah and snakes and, they got some snake piles there so, yeah yeah the habernacles hibernacles what uh speaking of that stream i've always wanted to know and maybe you don't know but south of the arches there yeah there's those ponds and they're in weird shape yeah what are those all about so I've heard through the grapevine that that those are dog training okay. uh, ponds. And they were having trouble. The trainer who was going to run it is Canadian, I believe. Okay. And he was having trouble 
getting here to work. Okay. Uh, that's what I heard, and that was a couple years ago. So maybe they're being used right now. I just figured they were mosquito nesting. Yeah. Or <laughs> I've never I've never seen any dogs out there, so I'm assuming yeah. that that's still kind of the case. But they put a ton of work into, into building those. Yeah. So yeah, and there's a there's a similar spot near Kellogg, Minnesota, uh, where it's kind of down in the floodplain where they have. Um, some ponds that are just they look just like that and yeah i see dogs out there once in a while but not at the one kind of where you're describing sure so we're getting kind of towards the end of the, the podcast here one thing i always kind of like to ask my guests is can you tell me about a time when you were outside doing whatever you're passionate about when time was just standing still yeah um so I mentioned that water quality study that we did. Uh, we had stream gauging stations set up. We had six of them throughout the whitewater. And and there was one time, uh, so I had a grad student, who Cole Weaver, who would look after him uh, for the most part, but he was out of town. Uh, he was sheep hunting in Alaska. <laughs> and, uh, and On vacation. Yeah, he was on vacation. <laughs> trekking through the mountains for weeks on end um but uh there was one time where i it was right after a storm event and usually we would go out after a storm event to see if any of the samplers got triggered and just just to make sure all our equipment was still in the stream and it was one of those things i was out by myself and i think it was earlier in the morning and so the sun was just kind of coming up and and the water was high but it wasn't like dangerously high uh and it was you know i was like i just kind of had to stop and it was just such a spectacular moment being by myself in the stream and i was just thinking to myself holy shit i get paid to do this this is my job <laughs> and you know that was i i don't know i I, f I frequently have those types of moments, but at that time, like everything was just totally perfect. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say that'd have to be it. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure that memory is ingrained in your mind. And yeah. When times get tough at work, <laughs> yeah. <you can> maybe... <laughs> when I'm piled, I have a pile of paperwork or grading or something <laughs> to do. It's like, sure. oh, I just want to be out on yeah. the stream. Yeah. And, you know, I usually get the chance to do that. That's so. awesome cool yeah well thanks man i really appreciate it um there's one more little segment here and i, I didn't tell you about this <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I didn't tell you about this because i kind of i i like to leave this at the last last uh last segment here nice kind of a surprise so i guess we'll we'll dive into these real quick so i call it my this or that or would you rather question my segment um so I whatever I, I think i played this in high school probably <laughs> <laughs> So what, uh, whatever, whatever comes to mind first, whatever you think you like better first. Okay. All right. Am I being timed? Nope. Nope. Okay. Brown trout or brook trout? Brown trout. Stalagmite or stalactite? <laughs> uh, stalagmite. Okay. In the lab or in the field? F uh, field for sure. Bigfoot. Is he real or is he fake? <laughs> fake. <laughs> Strata or chatoyancy? Strata, because I have no idea what chatoyancy is. I have to look it up. 
I, my wife and I joke that we're naming my next daughter Chatoyance. Nice. <laughs> it's a it, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Okay, it really is. All right. Zion or Grand Canyon? Zion. Appalachian Trail or Mount Rainier National Park? Ooh, I'm gonna say Mount Rainier. All right. Sedimentary or metamorphic? Sedimentary. All right. So you yeah, that Appalachian Trail versus Mount Rainier. Quick story. I'm right now. I'm reading a book on this person who is a writer who traveled the entire Appalachian Trail, and so I'm kind of getting into it. In the woods, is it called? Uh, in the that might be it oh, yeah. by Bryson. Yep, I yeah. own it. It's a great book. Super funny. I'm at night. I'm reading it, and my wife is trying to sleep, and I'm laughing out loud. I can't stop laughing. So highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, but I have a buddy who is trying to get us all to go climb Mount Rainier and last summer we were going to do it and it got canceled and he, he was the only one who, who ended up trying to do it again this year and he was supposed to go out this week and they called him last Wednesday and said there was a big avalanche and he can't do it. So, so yeah, both of those. I don't know where you pulled those two from, but both have, you know, meaning in my life right now. So cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> I do a little homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been a, a treat to just talk to you about this area. I'm really passionate about here and about this area that I live in here. And, uh, you know, I moved down here after I graduated high school to go to school, obviously. And I, I can't find a better reason better reason to stay here or leave it's just great so yeah thanks for teaching me a lot more about this area oh yeah awesome and uh thanks for having me uh you know great podcast i got to listen to the first episode before this and i'll listen to the second one as as soon as i get home probably on my way home um but i'm really glad you're you're starting this you know it's such a such a cool thing and bring a little bit of notoriety to the area and just just show people what we're all about here yeah so it's cool well, cool. Thanks again, man. Yeah. I'll, uh, I look forward to chatting with you in the future. And well, you know, now that we've met, I'm sure we'll be able to hang out. Absolutely. So. <laughs> All right, man. All right, cheers. Thanks again. Bye.